Let's pray. Father, thanks for today, and uh, I am so thankful that I get an opportunity to share uh, with this church family today, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would increase and I would decrease. I pray, Father, you would pour out your Spirit on our uh, church family here this morning. Over the next uh, half hour, 45 minutes, Lord, would you open the eyes of our heart, Lord, and help us to know you better. Do you give us power in our hearts today as we hear from your word to grasp how much you love us? Help us to live the way you've called us to live. And Lord, wherever there needs to be correcting in our hearts or minds, Lord, would you correct us? If there's rebuking, rebuke us. Lord, if we need some training today, I pray that you would use my message to equip us as a family uh, to walk in the righteousness that you created us for, to walk as Jesus walked. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. So uh, we're starting this new series called Bad Coffee Mugs, and uh, I'm excited about it because I get to drink on stage. I've never done that before. Does that make you thirsty? Are you thirsty now? You want to go get a cup of coffee? Uh, So, you know, we hear these statements from time to time in our culture, and especially even in the Christian world, that sound Christian-y, Right? Uh, statements that people make all the time, uh, statements like, you know, God wants me to be happy, or, you know, God, never, God will never give me more than I can handle. And they sound true, and we think they're biblical, and, and they sound nice, um, but, but really, are they really rooted in Scripture? And so that's what we're going to do the next few weeks. We're going to look at several of these statements, and today we're going to look at this statement here. Uh, we are all God's children. We are all God's children. Well, that sounds nice. It, it, it kind of sounds biblical. It looks good on a coffee mug, but is it true? Is it true? Are we all God's children? Let's take another drink because it's fun. <laughs> it's the last one I'm probably going to be able to take. It's not true. We're not all God's children. When I go to the park and I was there last Saturday, and there were hundreds of kids running around that park, and I'm there with two of my children, I can tell you that there are only two kids in that whole park I care about. (laughs) I mean, there's only two kids that I'm really paying attention to. There are only two children in that whole park that I would say, "Those those are my children. They're not all my children. And so, is everyone God's children? No. Everyone is not God's children. And so, what we're going to do today is we want to walk through the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to pull out several passages in Ephesians. We're going to look at some other passages in other books throughout the New Testament. And what I want us to do is I want us to clearly identify who are the children of God and who aren't. Because here's the truth. Most of you who are sitting in this room are children of God. But there are some of you who are sitting here this morning, and and you're not. You may know that you're not a child of God, and you may be seeking the Lord, and you may be coming to church uh, because you know God's doing something in your life, and so you're asking some questions, and you're curious, and and so you're seeking the Lord, but you know you're not a child of God. Others of you are here this morning, and you're sitting here, and if I were to ask you, are you a child of God, you'd say yes, but the truth is you're not. And that's important for us to know. It's important for us to know who are the children of God and who aren't. And if we are children of God, then how, how then shall we live? And so we're going to walk through Ephesians, and we're just going to allow God's Word to give us some 
instruction and some guidance on this. We're going to be in Ephesians 1. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn there, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Most of the passages in Ephesians that are going to be on the screen today are going to be the New Living Translation. We typically use the NIV, the New International Version, uh, but for some different reasons, I chose to use the New Living Translation this morning. So if you like to pull up uh, the Bible on your app and you want to choose specifically the NLT, you're welcome to do that. Let's start with verse 3, Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. All praise to God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Even before He made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. I want to draw your attention to that specific phrase in there, even before He made the world. Even before He made the world. From the beginning of creation, God has loved us and chosen us. Before my wife and I had children, we made the conscious decision that we wanted a family. And God wants a family for himself. This was God's original intent. In fact, this was his original plans. We were all created to be children of God. And that's point number one in your notes today, if you're following along. God wants, God wants everyone to be a child of God. He wants everyone to be a child of God. Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, paint a scene where God creates man and woman, and then he immediately pursues this intimate, loving relationship with them, a a relationship as a father pursues with his children. He interacts with them. He walks with them and talks with them. We see a God who shows personal concern for Adam and Eve. He takes responsibility to provide for their needs like a father does for his children. And and Adam and Eve are, are pictured as living there with their creator and where they experience this unhindered relationship with God. They depend on God to guide their life. They trust him to meet their needs. They find their identity and their sense of purpose in their relationship with God the Father. And together, they experience this beautiful, joyful life. A favorite book of mine uh, called The Drama of Scripture uh, walks through the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, They summarize it this way. They say, the creation itself is described, listen to this, as a marvelous home prepared for humankind a place in which they may live and thrive and enjoy the intimate presence and companionship of God the Father. Now, doesn't that sound wonderful? I mean, think with me here for a minute. Doesn't that, doesn't that, doesn't that sound wonderful? Isn't that the kind of life that you want? Isn't that your desire? Wouldn't it be great to literally walk and talk with God? Have you ever thought about that? Wouldn't it be great to be able to see Jesus face to face and to live with God. Imagine for a moment if you were living in his presence. Imagine what would it be like for God to take care of your needs, for, you to enjoy, for God to enjoy your company and for you to enjoy his. Imagine trusting and depending on God to meet your daily needs, to guide you. Imagine no conflict in your relationships. Oh, who wants that? Raise your hand. Amen, right? Imagine no conflict in your relationship. Imagine no hurtful words spoken, no spiteful attitudes, no selfish motives, no lying, no stealing, no fear or guilt or shame, only love and kindness, gentleness and respect. Imagine that. Imagine a world where we all respected one another. 
Imagine a world where there was joy and peace and freedom. Isn't that the kind of life we all long for? Aren't those the deepest desires of your heart, my heart? It's It's a desire of God's heart as well. God longs to have a close, loving relationship with you and me. He longs for us to have intimate relationships with each other. This was God's original intent. But that's not, that's not quite the kind of life that, God, that, that, that we experience, is it? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's not the life I experience on a daily basis. Well, what went wrong? Well, let's look, about it. Let's look at it. As God is creating a life for Adam and Eve, and He's building a home for them, and He's establishing a loving environment for them, He gave them some boundaries. He gave them some parameters. As the author of their lives, God revealed to them how life was designed to work, how He designed life to work. He was reviewing the instruction manual, if you will. And God gave them one warning, just one. He said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do you will die. Now, what is this? What is this tree in the garden? uh, What is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, we could spend a lot of time unpacking that. There's a lot of different uh, authors and theologians have have, uh, described and tried to explain what this tree meant. But to summarize, the tree was a symbol that represented autonomy. It, the tree represented a, 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 a temptation to desire to live independently of God. See, living autonomously means this. I choose, I choose to live independently by myself and separate myself from others. Many of us do this on a daily basis. One author defines autonomy this way. He says, autonomy is choosing oneself as the source of determining what is right and wrong, rather than relying on God to define right and wrong. But, here's, but there's a big, big, big problem with that. Here it is. Aravi Zacharias, Christian apologist, says this. He says, apart from God, we cannot come to our own understanding of what is right and wrong. It's like uh, the, I always like using the, the analogy, uh, it's like I'm a, I create the iPhone, and then it's like the iPhone deciding it's going to be a toaster, right? I mean, it's not too far from being that. I heard that's the next, uh, it's going to be able to do that next year. Um, but like, the, the creation isn't the one who defines what it was uh, meant to do. The creator is the one who defines it. The creator is the one who gives us our understanding of what is right and wrong. And so Adam and Eve are tempted, and they face this, this temptation that you and I face every day. And that's to live autonomously, to live independent of God. That's the fundamental nature of sin. Don't you? Isn't that a daily struggle for you? I mean... Isn't that one of our most basic struggles every day, that we want to do things our way? Can anybody relate to that? I mean, it's amazing. I'm 39 years old. I, uh, I, I've got a few kids, been married a handful of years, and been in ministry for a while. And I am dumbfounded by how every day there's this urge that lives in me and stays with me throughout the day. And that urge is to have life my way. And everything in our culture tells us You can have it your way. You can have life your way. But that's a lie. That is the nature of sin. Whenever you feel the desire to have things your way, more often than not, that's the sin of Adam that he has passed down to you and me. So what did Adam and Eve do? Well, God says to them, listen, don't try to live independent of me. Don't try to figure life out on your own. 
God says to them, take my word for it. If you try to live apart from me, it's going to end in death. And Satan steps in and he lies to them. And Satan says, you're not going to die. No, no, no. If you live separate from God, you'll actually be like God. You'll be able to determine. You'll be able to have things your way. But Satan was lying to them. He's telling them that they didn't need to depend on God, that they could live separate from God. Well, how did they respond? They chose not to take God's word for it. And they decided to find out for themselves. Oh, boy, if you have little children, and my wife, I, I, I told my wife, I said, honey, I, I, she goes, you got to use the illustration of, of, of the kids. I'm like, babe, I always talk about the kids. That's all I ever talk about in sermons is my kids, my kids, people are getting sick of it. She goes, honey, it's a message about the father and children. Like, you, this is, this, you have to use the, the illustration. So just bear with me. So, like, I mean, this is, this is, this is what we see. This is what we see in children all the time. I, don't you just want to look at your children and say, listen, please take my word for it. Please just take my word for it. And you don't even have to have, to have children. If you've been down the roads uh, in life and you've experienced some things that other people haven't, and you see someone headed down that road, and maybe it's a friend or maybe it's a coworker or a family member, don't you want to look at them sometimes? You've said this. You've said this before. Or people have said this to you. Oh, just take my word for it. Just take my word for it. This was the heart of the father saying to Adam and Eve, please just take my word for it. And he said, no, I'm going to figure it out on my own. <laughs> my, little, my little two-year-old says that all the time. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll figure it out. I'll do it on my own. And that separation led to death. And that's where we have the fallen world. This was Adam's legacy. Adam's sin led to separation and death. And, you know, Jesus was called the second Adam because Jesus did what Adam failed to do. Jesus lived in complete dependence on the Father. Jesus never lived independently of his heavenly Father. In fact, multiple times he says, I I can do nothing on my own initiative. He said, my teaching is not my own. Jesus says, I I do not speak on my own, but, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say. And so whatever I say is just what the Father's told me to say. And at the end of his ministry, Jesus prayed. He prayed to his Father and he says, Father, my disciples know that everything you've given me comes from you. He was always living in dependence on his father. He modeled a life of total dependence on the father. This is what we were called and how we were supposed to live as children of God. Sin separates us and alienates us from God, but God set in motion a plan to reconcile us to himself. How would God, how would God reconcile the separation Well, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. And he wants everyone to become a child of God again through Jesus. Let's look back at Ephesians real quick. Chapter 1, we'll look at verses 4 through 8. Follow along. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and he gave, it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us, on, the, on those who belong to his dear son. His plan, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom. I love that phrase, that he purchased our freedom. That's what we celebrated Easter. He purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and he forgave us our sins. He showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. His plan, God's plan was adoption. He purchased us through Jesus Christ. And that leads to point number two, is that children of God have been adopted by God. 
Who are the children of God? It's those of us who have been adopted by God. Have you been adopted by God? I love that it says that God was excited, that it brought God great pleasure, that God was eager to develop a plan to adopt us into his family. In Roman culture, during the time when Paul writes this book in Ephesians, adoption was practiced in similar ways as it is today. But there were a few specific consequences of adoption in the Roman culture. uh, I'm going to give you three of them. Number one, if you adopted someone in, uh, if uh, there was adoption taking place in, in Rome, Uh, Here's three things happen. Number one, the adopted son lost all rights to his old family. He lost all the rights to his old family, but he gained all the rights to a fully uh, of a fully legitimate son in his new family. In the most literal sense, it says, and in the most binding legal way, the child got a new father. Number two, the second thing that happened when you were adopted was the child became heir to his new father's estate. And if there were other sons, he was co-heir with them. Number three, The old life of the adopted son was completely wiped out. For instance, if there were any debts, they were legally canceled. They were wiped out as if they had never been, which is great because if you had a large student loan, then you no longer had to worry about paying that student loan. I'm lobbying for this practice to be brought back, and I figured if it were, we'd be having adoptions everywhere. Like, you know, we could all just adopt each other and cancel out our student loans. Okay, the point of that... (laughs) was that the adopted son was regarded as a new person entering into a new life, and the past could no longer be held against them, their old rights. Why did Paul use that illustration? Because these are all the same consequences that are true of you and me when we are adopted by God. We have a new father. We've gained the rights that come with being God's child. Our old debts are wiped out. Our sins are forgiven. We've been given a new life. And as children of God, we are co-heirs with Christ. This is why we praise God for the glorious grace He's poured out on us as his children. But how does that adoption come about? How do we go about being adopted? Maybe you're sitting here today and you said, I, I'm not sure if I'm adopted. I'm not, I'm not sure if I've ever experienced that before. How does that happen? Well, first, our adoption comes through choosing to believe in Jesus. Our adoption comes through choosing to believe in Jesus. I'm going to look at a couple of passages that speak to this. First, in John 1. The apostle uh, John writes in John chapter 1, yet to all who died... To, to all who did receive him, to all did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So those of us who receive Jesus, you hear us use that phrase a lot, those of us who believe in his name, those of you who believe in Jesus, he's given us the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus said you must be born again. He was talking about a spiritual birth. We must experience a spiritual birth, and it comes through choosing to believe. The word right, the word right in verse 12, means power of choice or liberty of doing as one pleases or permission. Here's the beautiful thing about the good news. God has given us the power and liberty to choose to believe in Jesus. And the word for believe doesn't just mean an intellectual belief. It does mean that, but in addition, it means to place your confidence in or to place your trust or to entrust yourself and your life to one. So those who have placed their confidence and their trust and have entrusted their lives to Jesus, those who have trusted Jesus as Savior for their sins, who believe in Jesus as Lord, who live in dependence on Jesus, are children of God. Here's how how Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, 
Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. We're adopted into God's family by believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. That Jesus is alive today, just as Steve said this morning. That we believe, we celebrate Easter every day. That he's the risen Christ. He sits at the right hand of the Father today. That if we believe that and we confess with our mouth that we are adopted into his family. Is that it? Is that all we got to do? Well, yes and no. See, in Roman culture, in order for an adoption to be valid, you had to have a witness. You had to have witnesses to confirm the adoption. And when we believe and confess, God sends His Holy Spirit into our hearts. And it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who serves as our witness and confirms that we are now God's child. Look at Galatians chapter 4. But when the, time, time, when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, to reconcile us, that we might receive what? Adoption to sonship. And because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son, that's the Holy Spirit, into our hearts. And the Holy Spirit is the one who calls out, or who testifies on our behalf, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you're God's child. And since you are His child, God has also made you an heir. See, it's the Holy Spirit in us who cries out, Abba, Father. Does your spirit cry out for your Heavenly Father? I mean, is there longing in your heart to be with your Heavenly Father? It's one of the indicators that the Spirit dwells in your heart and is testifying and confirming that you're a child of God. Our adoption is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Look what Ephesians 1 says. Back to Ephesians 1. Paul continues. He says, And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth. So just to be clear, there were Jews, and then anybody who was not a Jew was a Gentile. And so Paul's writing this to the Ephesians, and there's both Jews and Gentiles who are going to be reading this letter. And so he says, and, to you, and now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, see that key phrase? We've got to believe in Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, he identifies you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that, we, that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify Him. So the children of God have been adopted by God by believing in Jesus Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. This is the good news of the gospel. This is good news. Now Paul summarizes all of this beautifully in Ephesians 2. Let's read verses 2 through 9. Remember, we're working through Ephesians. Here's what Paul summarizes. He summarizes it all. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. So this is before Jesus. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He's real. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God, those who live independent of God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of your sinful nature. By our very nature, it's not that we don't struggle with sin sometimes. He's talking about a different nature. By our by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God's so rich in mercy that He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. 
And it is only by God's grace that you've been saved. Meaning there's nothing you can do to earn God's grace. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. We're called to just believe. And he says, he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us, those of us who are united with Christ. Okay, so here's who the children of God are. The children of God are those who have believed in Jesus Christ, who have confessed with their mouth, and who have received the Holy Spirit and are born again, and their spirit testifies and cries out, Abba, Father. And that's who the children of God are. So, so now what? So, so what? So we're, what do we do with this? Well, really, this, is, this brings us, all of this brings us to the heart of the message today. Twofold. Number one, if you've never believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth, you are not a child of God. And you're not a part of God's family. And the Bible says that you are on a path to living eternally separated from God. And that is called hell. But, Here's the beautiful thing. Let's go back to John 1, 12. Yet all who received him and those who believe in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. You have a right. You have permission. God's given you the opportunity. He's given you the opportunity to believe in his son Jesus, to confess with your mouth, to put your faith and your trust in him, and to be saved and to become a child of God, to be adopted into his family. He's given you the right. And he wants you to choose. God wants you to. He, I want you to. We want you to. God wants you to. He's waiting for you. Look at this. He's waiting for us. Look at 2 Peter 3.9. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God wants everyone to become a children of God. He wants everyone. Or how about this one? In uh, uh, 1 Timothy verse two, chapter 2. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all, God, uh, God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Romans 10 says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth and you'll be saved. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you need to do that today. I want to encourage you, don't leave here today without making that decision and doing that. And here's the other uh, application. If you've done that, but you've not been baptized as Steve mentioned in just a few weeks on May 1st, and I love the testimony of the video, that multiple times throughout the Bible we're told, believe and be baptized. That baptism does not bring salvation, it's an expression of your salvation. It means those who have been, those who, who believed and become children of God express their faith through baptism. And so make it a point in the next few weeks to be baptized, to make, take that step of faith, to, here's what baptism is. Baptism is identifying with the person of Jesus. It's one of the most powerful steps of obedience that we can take. So let me ask you something. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, I, I, I've never made this decision. I, I've never believed in Jesus. I've never confessed verbally out loud that he is Lord. I've, I've never put my trust in him. What's the obstacle keeping you from doing that? What is the obstacle? Here, 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 maybe you're not ready to do that. 
Let me tell you this. Identify the obstacle and figure out a way to get it out of the way. Meaning, what, is, what questions do you still have? What obstacles are keeping you from putting your faith and trust in Jesus? Come and talk to us as a staff. This is why we're here. This is why Steve's here. Talk to Steve. This is why Steve's here. Don't come to me. Uh, talk to Cameron. I'm just, I'm just reading this. I don't know what I'm talking about. No, um, come to us. Talk to us. We, if, if you have questions, we'd love to answer them. Open up the scriptures. Begin searching out for yourself. If you are a child of God, I want you to listen to what Paul's message is for you in Ephesians 4. Here's what he says. Therefore, I, a prisoner of serving the Lord, beg you, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling you have received. It's interesting that Paul spends the first three chapters talking about who are the children of God. And then he says in Ephesians 4.1, now live like it. That's point number three in our message, our, our notes. Children of God live like children of God. This is a passion of Paul's. He says it several times throughout the New Testament. He urges his readers multiple times to look at, look at two times. He prays for this. He actually prays. In Colossians, he prays. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. Look at 2 Thessalonians. He prays it in 2 Thessalonians. He says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling. Here's what Paul's message is, and that's why maybe our, our message for most of us today who are children of God, is that we need to live like children of God. D.A. Carson says this, in this strange paradox, Paul is constantly telling people, in effect, to become what they are. That is, since we are already children of God because of His free grace to us in Christ, we must now live like that. God has graciously called us. We must live up to that calling. We're not strong enough or disciplined enough to take these steps. That's why Paul prays as he does. So let me give you a couple practical things to do. If you're a child of God, number one, you need to be praying Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. Write that down. Go home and pray that. Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. Here's what I'll say. I'll say this boldly. If you are not praying, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, if you're not praying and asking God to help you live like a child of God, you won't live like a child of God. Because it takes God to live like a child of God. If Paul had to pray that for the early Christians, then how much more do we have to pray it for ourselves? We must pray that God would help us to live like children of God. And then, not only should we pray it, but also we should imitate Jesus, because he was the perfect son of God. I want you to look at Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, before we close here. Paul says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. What do, what do children of God do? Children of God imitate God. Well, who's God? God in the flesh. It's Jesus. Live a life worthy, filled with love, following the example of Christ. So let's be a church family that does two things, okay? Two things. Number one, as children of God, pray. Pray that God would help you live like a child of God. Pray for your children, that God would help your children live like child of God. Parents, it's a great prayer for you to pray for your children. Look it up, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3. Pray for our church family. God, help us as a church family live like children of God. And number two, pattern your life after Jesus. 
Listen, you can't live like a child of God if you're not studying the life of Jesus, if you're not looking to Jesus. Open up the Gospels. Use the SOAP study method. Work through John or Matthew or Mark or Luke, one of the four Gospels, and look at the life of Jesus and ask yourself, how can I imitate Jesus and follow his example? That's what a child of God does. A child of God lives like children of God. I got one final question I want to leave you with, and that's this. If you, if you're a parent, or if you were a parent, if you are a parent, and your children lived as if you were not their parent, how would that make you feel? Let me ask it again. If you're a parent and your children lived as if you were not their parent, how would that make you feel? I thought about that this week. I don't know about you. It would break my heart. Wouldn't that break your heart? If your children lived like you were not their parent, they didn't seek a relationship with you, they didn't follow your leadership, they didn't put the principles and the values that you've tried to instill in them into practice. If your children lived as if you were not their parent, wouldn't it break your heart? It's just my opinion. I think when the family of God, when the children of God don't live like the children of God, I think it breaks our Heavenly Father's heart. Let's not be a church family who breaks our father's heart, but let's be a church family who lives like children of God. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would pour out your spirit of wisdom and revelation on us, that we would know you better, that we would relate to you as children relate to a father. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would know the hope that we have in you as children of God. I pray, God, that you would give us power in our hearts to grasp your love for us, Lord. Help us to take it in and to take possession of it and to make it our own as children of God. Help us to know how much you love us. Help to, uh, to experience your love, God. And Lord, help us to be a church family who lives like children of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.